from the poetical works of William Blake, Gnomic Verses, to God. If you have formed a circle to go into, go into it yourself and see how you would do. The lower decks of the Phoenix Project, an immense cavern of chipped fiberboard, rough-hewn plastic, and thin metal built, bent, and shaped into makeshift hollows for storage. Blinking fluorescent lights overhead barely illuminate narrow corridors. Cool air flows from shoddy refrigeration units concealed behind plaster walls. Compressors beyond their prime, rebuilt over a century, beaten into submission, hum, gurgle coolant. Two Phoenix law enforcement officers emerge from the shadows. One walks confidently, the other cautiously, glancing over his shoulder repeatedly. What is this? The younger, less experienced patrolman asks his superior. Right over here. The other man's eyes are concealed behind the protective helmet that cannot hide his ghoulish grin. Behind a plastic shower curtain hanging in a slight alcove, Mike Helms rouses his lover, Mindy. Baby. The Phoenix Project's chief pest controller squeezes Mindy's generous flesh. Mindy, do you hear something? The young woman's brilliant blue eyes flutter open. She sees the look of alarm on Mike's ghostly face. Mike, what is it? She asks as Helms leans against the wall. Peeling back the curtain, Mike Helms spies two Phoenix law enforcement officers rounding the corner, coming closer. The cockroaches come down here, the lead patrolman explains to his partner, taking no care to be quiet. They hide out between the walls. There. He points in Mike's direction. See that gray sheet? Looks like polymer, right? Wrong, the leader gestures. Mike Helm sees the officer point, watches the other man shrug. He ducks back into the cell-like module where he and Mindy lay together. Did they see him? As the Phoenix law enforcement officers approach, Mike and Mindy overhear them. Does the council know about this? Asks the younger patrolman. Who cares? The leader replies. We're in charge here. I have orders from Colonel Marsh. We should check with Major McGillicuddy, his partner says unassured. McGillicuddy. Mike remembers the name. That was the black man who came to the apartment module Helms shared with his longtime best friend, Professor John Bath. The law enforcement officer escorted John to the Phoenix Project's laboratory. After that, Mike saw less and less of his friend, who gave vague details of a secret mission, an exploratory assignment to determine if the survivors of the subterranean Phoenix Project could return to the surface of the Earth. Cuddy isn't here, Mike overheard the leader say. His voice was near, too close. Look, you want to crack some skulls or not? Hit him with your truncheon. Watch the rest of the roaches scatter. There was hatred, a vile kind of glee in his tone. Mike rushed to Mindy's side. He pushed against her while desperately gathering their clothes, a handcrafted book of poetry, and an origami flower his friend, Harumi Gale, Dr. Bath's student, made for Mike to give to Mindy. Mindy! Mike shouted as one of the patrolmen leapt into their secret space. Run! Phoenix Law Enforcement, the lead officer announced. This area is prohibited. You're all under arrest. The words were barely out of the patrolman's mouth before bodies leapt from various portals. 
Men climbed walls, leaping from plywood beams overhead. Their female counterparts slid across sawdust and metal shaving-covered floors. Told you they'd scatter. The lead officer flashed crooked teeth at his partner, then turned back to Mike and Mindy. Mindy cried out as the man grabbed her by the hair. Mike darted between them, and the officer brought his truncheon down hard into Mike's shoulder. You son of a bitch! Mike shouted and rolled across the floor. He knew he was no match for them, but was determined to protect Mindy. Shut your mouth, scab. The patrolman sneered and dragged Mindy's uncovered body into the hallway. She's pregnant, Mike pleaded. The younger of the two officers knelt nearby, swiftly binding the hands of others trying to flee the area. Sergeant? He flipped up the protective shield on his helmet. The experienced officer looked down at Mike and Mindy, a blank look on his face. For a moment, Mike thought the man would take pity on them. Then, Helm saw the gloved hand at his eye level squeeze the baton. Well, the officer shrugged. Whose fault is that? As the truncheon came down, Mike knew he was shouting, but couldn't hear his own voice. All he heard were Mindy's sobs, the resounding sounds of chaos around them. Why was this happening? Why would the Shadow Council, the central processor that provided for those in the Phoenix Project, allow this to happen? Before he lost consciousness, Mike thought maybe John was right. Maybe they weren't survivors of whatever happened on the surface. Maybe they were prisoners. Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath Episode 13 Darkness On Governor's Island, somewhere outside of Manhattan, General Benjamin Castro walked past the overgrown entranceway to the small chapel. He followed the young man who identified himself as Piker, a mutant who was six feet tall, hunched over with full-sized hands jutting out from his arm sockets. A scaly rash snaked around the man's upper body and neck. As they entered the candlelit chapel, Castro's robotic eyes compensated for the darkness. His enhanced hearing alerted him to something scurrying nearby. Grimnox, Piker mumbled. They eat up the dust and bacteria, keep things mostly clean. General Castro saw nothing but tall candles dripping wax into mud and algae-encrusted floors. He half-nodded, as if understanding what his escort talked about. They passed through the nave to the altar. Despite this place having been a Christian sanctuary, the Israeli general's first inclination was to bow to kneel or pray to the all-powerful and benevolent Lord for whom he once fought, led men to glory or death. 
Castro couldn't help but wonder if the God of Abraham, of Moses, of King David had given up on mankind, fled his creation, and left behind monsters and madmen. What treasures hath thou brought? came a voice from behind the altar. There stood a naked man, surrounded by heated glass globes, chemistry equipment, and battery-powered machinery. Insects swarmed around his stout body. Before Piker could say anything, Castro stepped forward quickly. You're the magistrate? It is as you say, the man replied, with the same arrogant eloquence in which Piker and the guardsmen outside spoke. What the hell is this place? Castro asked. Where are your clothes? This is my temple, my laboratory, replied the magistrate. I have no need for garments here. Castro stepped up to the altar. He glanced at the bubbling chemicals. You're a scientist? The magistrate nodded. Scientist? Cleric? Alchemist? Have you brought tribute? Castro shook his head. No, I... Jesus, this place is filthy. The general tried to determine if the other man concealed a weapon behind the altar. What are you? The magistrate cocked his head sideways. Neither Goon Dragon, nor Rockhead, nor Morlock. And yet you are here. Are the Canadian? Why does everybody keep asking me that? Listen, I don't know what all of this is, and, and frankly, I'm not sure I want to know. I asked that, what was his name, Piker? Castro motioned behind him, but saw the mutant who escorted him there had slipped away somehow. Piker said there were survivors here. He said, Piker, the magistrate interrupted, the fool. Castro walked up to the altar. I'm part of an expedition, he explained, as he approached the naked magistrate. An expedition? The other man's pearly eyes opened wide. You're an adventurer. I guess you could say that. I'm looking for information. Answers. Aren't we all? The magistrate shrugged. Castro glanced over the man's body. Unlike some of the others he, Major McGillicuddy, and Dr. Bath encountered, the man seemed human enough. What happened to you? Castro asked. What happened to New York? The magistrate laughed. <laughs> what happened? Catastrophes only gods and governments know. Frustrated, Castro replied. That's not an answer. He continued. Piker said survivors of the... The fall came here. How long have you been here? The naked man turned his attention away from the bubbling experiments on the altar. His eyes searched overhead, as if thinking intently. How long indeed? A lifetime, at least. These, like the end of all things, are mysteries even to survivors. Who were we? What did we stand for? What happened? cause and effect. One moment, the blessed warmth and comfort of homes, and the next, holocaust. Powerless. No explanation, no leadership, no solace. Nothing. Like animals left to our devices, many of us fled one island for another. Assembling meaning from the magistrate's explanation, Castro spoke. You left Manhattan and came here. The magistrate nodded. Long Island, originally, he said. But yes, in cities we were roaches, feasts in spiders' webs. Here, we are masters of a new reality. What reality? the general asked. What the hell are you talking about? What is all of this? The magistrate hugged himself. Diseased minds poisoned us with drugs. 
compounds intended to suppress the horrors of the real world. He simulated injecting his forearm with a syringe, then pointed into his mouth. They locked us up in their asylums, charity clinics, and dungeons. So-called doctors and pharmacists took their kickbacks from corporations subsidized by the WHO to test their wonder compounds and tonics on fat, drooling bastards the rest of the world couldn't care less about. Castro stood directly in front of the man. I don't understand. Oh? The magistrate looked indignant. Don't you? Those who didn't kill themselves killed others, fought for survival. And what do you think happened? Tell me, Castro said. The magistrate grinned slightly. We won. When the city was destroyed, burning, on fire, when chemicals and pestilence claimed the weak or transformed the living, we were anointed. Castro nodded, trying to understand. So, you're saying chemical weapons are responsible for the mutations? Of course. The magistrate leered demonically. How were the weapons deployed? Castro asked. A warhead? From the sky or from the sea? The magistrate backed away a few inches. Some say dirty bombs planted under the city, major cities around the globe. He gazed down at his experiments, then at a smashed stained glass window behind General Castro. Others cited gas attacks from drones hovering above. The general continued fishing for information. What cities? What difference does it make? The nude man shrugged. Once the amenities of life were destroyed, power grids compromised, dams rendered useless, the human race and all its industry reverted to what the Lord originally created. But that creation is no more. Except for us, those here on Nut Island. Well, we may be mad, but we are free. So you think, Castro hesitated, his mind trying to put it all together, but coming up with more questions trying to reconcile what he knew with what he was told by those in the Phoenix Project. You think the drugs that were forced on you prevented you from being... mutated? The magistrate interrupted Castro. Exactly. Castro nodded. He motioned to the gurgling potions and chemicals on the altar. So, what's all this? Ah, what indeed? The magistrate beamed as if he longed to be asked. A plan. My plan. Research and development on a compound to inoculate survivors and transfigure the malformed. It is my calling, my passion. Once I have the formula, the antidote, correct, we will deploy it from Staten Island to the five boroughs to heal or destroy the miserable ones who have run afoul of God's grand design. How do you know if the formula works? How do you test? Castro's words trailed away as he was cut off by the magistrate's maniacal laughter. Something funny to you? Castro made fists. <laughs> My friend, the magistrate leaned close, stubby fingers squeezing the general's shoulder. You are not the first to be received on our island, bereft of tribute or treasure. Before Castro could speak, the magistrate called out for Piker. Knave? Yes, my lord, the disabled boy stumbled to the altar. Piker's here. You stumbled again, fool, the magistrate told the mutant. You did not inform our guest of the price of safe passage. Yes, my lord, Piker nodded humbly. But me figured since he did not bear the scars of the Morlocks, nor the markings of the Rockheads, the magistrate shook his head, lowered his voice. Oh, Piker, you dumb bastard. Now wait just a damn minute. 
Castro took a step back, trying to put some space between him and the other two. You test your formula on these Morlocks and Rockheads? Of course, the magistrate confirmed. And since you came uninvited and without tribute, it must be assumed you are one of Silvio's spies. Silvio? Castro asked. Who the hell is Silvio? Sentries? The fat man's voice boomed in the small chapel. Castro backed away from the magistrate and Piker. About to flee, he watched muscle-bound guardsmen in tattered rags rush into the room from the front entrance and rear exit. Wait, Castro shouted. I'm no spy. I, I already told you. Damn it! For a moment, he considered leaping through the smashed stained glass window, but was unsure if his simulacrum body would clear the opening. Stand down or we will be forced to harm you, one of the sentries insisted. He raised a steel blade in front of the general. Piker stood nearby the general. Oh dear, he said, genuinely apologetic. Piker is so sorry. He stood back as the guard seized General Castro, forcing him to the floor. Ugh. You don't want to do this. You don't understand. The general got in a few swift swings on his opponents, but could feel his robot body becoming sluggish. This seemed to happen after sundown, or when his consciousness was close to being pulled through the green stream. Unable to resist the crew of soldiers, Castro was forced into submission. He relented, afraid that if he continued fighting, they would damage his simulacrum. The magistrate stepped from the altar to address the armed guards. Take him to the shell with the other degenerates. Soften him up a bit. Send in La Signa Belle. See what she can uncover about this foolish adventurer. Then, have him prepared for testing my latest inoculation. Castro closed his eyes, feigning unconsciousness. He heard one of the men reply, Thy will be done, my lord. Major Leonard McGillicuddy and Dr. John Bath walked side by side down the concrete tunnel snaking under the Hudson River. With the gun obtained from the boy, Kick, and his father, Cuddy felt more comfortable. Every so often, he glanced down at the map, then over at Bath. The professor gazed at one of the books the boy gave him. I don't see what the point of it is, Cuddy spoke quietly. Kick said books have no value. That's right, John replied without looking over but for some reason expired food as a commodity. The satchel filled with cans banged against his hip. They walked in silence a few minutes before Bath looked over. Of all I've read or reread, he held up the worn copy of the Christian scriptures, I've never read it. Well, not cover to cover anyway. You? Cuddy shrugged. My parents were believers. I'd never found much use for it. Not in the Phoenix Project, anyway, Bath added. Religion was not absent nor discouraged in the subterranean world where Cuddy and Bath were raised. But of the 3,000 who lived in the Phoenix Project, fewer citizens attended public religious services or observed holidays. Most descendants of Jews and Muslims were non-practicing, and Roman Catholicism had diminished into small clusters of charismatic Protestantism. A few Buddhist families still practiced, though not openly, and as of the central processor's last census, there were no Hindus, Zoroastrians, or Mormons. I thought you were an atheist, Cuddy said. I am, John half nodded, then added, I mean, of course I am. It's not so much that I don't believe. I just, you know, I, I have no faith in something that isn't real. Something that can't be proven. Hmm. 
Cuddy was unsure he wanted to get into a philosophical discussion with the anarchist linguistics professor. For some reason, Cuddy found it strangely unavoidable, and it passed the time. You know, Cuddy told Bath, to the people that came before us, the people on the surface, religion, faith, all of it was very real. It was meaningful, it gave them purpose. John shrugged. You speak so knowingly. How is it that with believers for parents, you escape their dogma? <laughs> I think that's the thing that annoys me the most about you, Bath, Cuddy grinned. Even when you're wrong, you presume you're right. Fair enough, John smiled, as if he had already won some far-off argument. But you didn't answer my question. Cuddy stopped walking for a moment. He turned to John, his simulacrum's face screwed into a long expression. Maybe I don't believe because they believed. Or maybe I don't believe because I don't want to. Bath leaned away from his fellow explorer, looked the other man over. No, that's not it, he shook his head. No, Cuddy asked. No. Bath walked a few paces ahead of the Major. You aren't the first survivor to believe in God and still be angry at him, or her, or the universe, or whatever higher power, for playing this big joke on humanity. Cuddy caught up with John. You say that as if you, Bath interrupted. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I agree, but it is logical. Why would a benevolent creator, a prime mover, whatever you want to call it, cause so much destruction, suffering, discomfort? You try to reconcile this like everyone else faced with the meaningless of pain and evil. The answer is simple. Bath pushed the Bible into his satchel. He continued walking. You shout into the abyss, and the only answer that makes sense is, none of it makes sense. Cuddy groaned, wishing he had some forceful retort to combat the academic's pithy arrogance, but that was not his way. Instead, the Major remained quiet. His thoughts wandered to what causes mutations of those on the surface. Why were some spared and others not? Were the Morlocks, the Rockheads, the Mudslugs, and the Sludge Snakes born that way? Or were their mutations caused by radiation, poisoned resources, or disease? Cuddy thought about asking Bath for his analysis, but he resisted. He recently came to understand Bath's father, Diarmid, and his own father, Mac, knew General Castro. They worked together at the United Nations. Had their lives been spared on purpose or by coincidence? And if they were saved from the destruction that fell the city Cuddy and John now approached, why were they raised so differently? Shouldn't their paths have crossed before the central processor selected them, supposedly at random, to follow General Castro and his mission to the surface? Cuddy, John's footsteps slowed. He pointed overhead at a dirt and rust-encrusted sign. End of the line. Cuddy saw the sign indicated they were entering Manhattan. Yeah, he nodded. You want to keep going, or... I don't know how much further we should go without the general, Cuddy interjected. We do have a little time before we pulled out of the green stream, John noted. Uh-huh, Cuddy said. We can hide our robot bodies somewhere out of sight, go back to the lab, find out what happened to the general. Dr. Bath nodded in agreement. Behind the Phoenix Project's lunch counter, beyond the pass-through of the common area and cafeteria, a group gathers in a recessed tile storage room. Some hover, and others kneel, as Maricela Santiago holds court. Santiago, 
better known as the lunch lady to friends and followers, seems neither old nor young. Her manner and expressions are controlled, revealing discipline, exuding calm. Come, children, the Hispanic woman waves a hand gently, inviting those at the back of the room to take their place inside the bag and box-lined room. Take a seat. If you're unable to find a seat, lean against the wall. Take a tamale. She gestures at a bag filled with food wrapped in aluminum foil. Fill your stomach. None are strangers here, and no one goes hungry. A few hands dip into the bag, snatching up the food. The lunch lady is well known for her handmade food, which is much tastier than the nutritious sludge she serves daily in the cafeteria. I know why most of you have come, of course. Santiago speaks thoughtfully. You heard from a friend who heard from a friend who heard a rumor. Voices in the whisper stream about things like personal freedom, truth, the way people lived on the surface before being funneled into a tin can and shoveled down here. Rumors. Her lips are slightly open, and her voice hangs in the air a little louder than the hum of refrigeration units on the other side of the wall. The Shadow Council calls them lies, and those who believe in them, liars. Santiago's eyes narrow. She looks from one person to another, from a young man to a boy to a middle-aged woman. Despite her calm tone, the lunch lady has a way of disarming them. Have you stopped to ask yourselves, why are they so afraid? What are they so afraid of? Is it the promise of something real? Or their inability to control it? The lunch lady pauses for a man in the back to speak. Control it? What do you mean? The lunch lady stands. Hope. She cocks her head, speaking directly to the man. Hope is the most damning force in the universe. The people gathered before Maricela Santiago look around, look at each other. What hope? They murmur in the confines of this cramped storage room. Hope, or anything like it, seems distant, so far away. The lunch lady smiles. Hope can swell a man's heart, she says confidently. Bring a woman to her knees. Hope can build you up, destroy you, and... Santiago pauses a moment. She looks at the lines in her hands, holds them up for all to see. If the Shadow Council and their infinite wisdom can control your sense of hope, she speaks assuredly, as if speaking directly to each man and woman individually. They can control your mind, sway your resistance, and break your spirit. They can steal your sense of wonder. But Maricela, a beautiful young woman nearby, speaks hesitantly. Santiago beams. Call me lunch lady. She tells the woman with the gap between her teeth. It's okay, my child. Everyone else does. Lunch lady, the woman asks. How are we to hold out hope when we're, when we're down here? We're made to do... The lunch lady interrupts. The dirty jobs? Hmm? There are always those who must do the dirty jobs, and sometimes, sometimes, the dirty jobs make one stronger, build your tolerance, give you strength, make you invulnerable to punishment, pain, torture. An older man at the back of the room pushes against the crowd hanging on the lunch lady's words. Maricela, lunch lady, he calls out. Santiago waves the man to the front of the room. Those sitting or standing nearby part to let him through. What is it, son? The lunch lady asks. The man takes a deep sigh. It's Mike, he says urgently. Mike Helms and Mindy, they... The lunch lady puts a hand on the man's shoulder. 
To the uninitiated, it is evident that the empathy so seldom shared by those in the Phoenix Project is the woman's great talent. Calm down. Speak unafraid. What's happened? The man nods, catches his breath. Law enforcement raided the squalor. He looks at Maricela, then at the fearful faces of the young people gathered around her. They rounded up everyone there, including Mike and Mindy. You know Mindy's... The lunch lady nods. This is unfortunate. It would appear we should pay a visit to our faithful protectors. Santiago raises her hands, palms up. The group gathered around her slowly stand as if levitated. They move, huddling together, whispering. Some turn away, moving for the closed door at the rear of the room. The crowd parts to allow Maricela Santiago to pass through. With more than a dozen followers in tow, the lunch lady leads her followers up out of the basement, into the cafeteria, and out of the common area. They walk purposefully towards Phoenix Law Enforcement Headquarters, and more specifically, the detention center. A loudspeaker crackles to life. Stop! No unauthorized personnel in this section. Stop! As uniformed Phoenix Law Enforcement officers approach, Maricela Santiago appears completely relaxed to those behind her. Everyone behind me, she spoke confidently. Surround the children. It will be all right. The lunch lady stood before the law enforcement officers, her smooth chin pointed upward, her dark eyes glaring. One officer looked at the other, then spoke into a microphone. Colonel, we have a situation here. Stop! Go back to your quarters immediately. No unauthorized personnel beyond this point. You are in violation. Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production. Based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Original script by Warren Davis, with Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with music by Warren Davis. Links to the sound effects used for Aftermath can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Fire Pit Creative Group.